We're going to jump right in. Uh, the title for this is just the framework for effectiveness. You know, this is a season Tyron's mentioned it many times where we are called to be effective, more effective than ever. And COVID and the lockdowns and all the, the, all the things they've wrought upon us, one of the great things they've brought is a streamlining of the church. It's helped to strip away all the things that have held us back from the, the bigger things that God has called us to. We can get so caught up in the periphery that we miss the point. And so today we're going to really go back to a very, not basic, but very, to me, framework, structural scripture for the church and who we're called to be. We're going to jump into Acts 2. And again, I trust that you're familiar with it. If you're not, then spend some time in there. But if you are, please open up your hearts again to it. It is not because God needs to constantly change and give us something new. He just helps, it needs to help us get back to the plumb line, the framework of what He gave us, of who we're to become, and how He wants to build His church. So as we jump in there, we're going to, again, you know, we can become so clever in how we do church. We figure it out, we add this, we add that. But when we look at the, the original church, the birthplace of our faith, we just see the, the wonderful simplicity of the king and his kingdom. So we're going to read a breadth of scripture. So I hope you've already gotten there. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice the everyone there was filled. And began speaking in other languages or tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things that God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. And the wonderful reality is when the Spirit of God moves in power, it causes both the believer and the unbeliever alike to stand in awe of God and to simply say, what can this mean? What is it that God is doing? And we're going to jump into because this is one of the key uh, parts of the framework of the gospel and of the church that we're called to be. And it says, and of course, others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying they're just drunk. That's all. And there will always be mockers. Then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd. Notice Peter, the coward, the one that ran away when Jesus was arrested. Here he is filled with the Spirit of God, and he's the one that steps forth and leads the way. It's again that transforming work of the gospel and the power of the Spirit of God within someone who ran out of fear, who is now standing in boldness. It says he shouted to the crowd, Listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and your daughters will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. 
And I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before that great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What an incredible declaration. And so as we, as we look at these things, we're going to carry on here in, in, in verse 22, but we're going to, again, see the framework coming together, and we'll go back over them. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life. For death could not keep him in its grip. King David said this about him. I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope. For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. Dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself, for he died and was buried, and his tomb is still here among us. But he was a prophet, and he knew God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. For David himself never ascended into heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and and Messiah. Again, framework parts we're going to look at in a moment. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? What a response. Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away, us as those generations all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. 3,000 people saved that day. Now friends, again, there is so much to that scripture. And again, I trust many of you have read it before, probably preached on it many times, as I know I'm more than likely speaking to leaders predominantly. But it doesn't mean we don't go back to it. Don't let familiarity breed contempt. Let familiarity with the scripture let us build properly. Because you see, in these times of shaking, it is a time for us to inspect our foundations, inspect our framework, and make sure that we are building according to God's plan and God's purpose and the way God intended You see, as we simply look into the church's beginnings, we see something quite different than the church today. And I think we all know that. We we all aspire for the more of God. But something quite powerful happened as the church began, and it changed the world forever. We are still recipients of what happened that day today. 
And again, for many as they look at the, the book of Acts and they look at this particular scripture as a prescriptive way to build the church. And it's not. It's a description of what took place. But it doesn't mean we should ignore it. It's just we're not trying to go backward. We're headed forward, just making sure everything is in the place it should be. So the questions we need to ask is what kind of church are we believing to become? What kind of church are we believing for? And what should we look like as God builds us into His bride, the one that He's returning for? So again, let's look at some of the elements of the framework, and then we're going to look at some of the, the keys we can walk in. First of all, they were united. The church was united. It says they were all together in one place. And I know that can imply there's just a bunch of people in a room, but clearly there was unity. And friends, we need to stand together now more than ever before. We need to pray together now more than ever before. With denominations and different streams and flows running, too many people have been trying to build something for themselves. But the truth is, as we all know, we are not trying to build anything other than what God has called us to build. And so I want to encourage us, I want to urge us more than anything else, walk in unity. If there is unforgiveness that has worked its way in, if there is jealousy or anything along those lines, deal with it and deal with it quickly so that we can be together in one place across the world, reaching the world with the gospel. Unity is an absolute must for the conditions, the framework of who God has called us to be. The next thing in this is they were filled with faith and expectation. Peter mentions that the prophet Joel said these things. There had been an anticipation, not just for them that day, but for generations, they had been longing and waiting for the Messiah to come. They had been longing and waiting for these things that were foretold. And friends, we need to be a people, not of waiting for lockdowns to stop and waiting to get back to this, but faith and expectation in the promises of God. That we are expecting the, the things that are so much bigger than us. It has to be God. Not a natural church, but a supernatural church. Not a church that walks in what we can do, but a church that gives the little that we can do and trusts for the overwhelming outpouring of the things that only God can do. Friends, we need to be a people. Part of our framework has to be faith and expectation in Him, in His Word, and in His promises. Another part of the framework was God's power was displayed. As they walked, obviously people were filled with the Spirit. They, everyone there in that room, in unity, was filled with the Spirit. And they didn't know the languages they were speaking. They were just speaking in tongues or languages as the Spirit enabled them. But the people around them heard their own native tongue being spoken, and it was proclaiming the praises of God. We need to walk in the power of God, expect it, but also allow God to use us however He desires. Maybe there's things we need to throw off. Maybe there's ways that we've grown up or things we've been used to or things we've seen happen, and that's the expectation we have. Friends, to some measure, rejoice in what God has done, but give Him room to do far more. If you've seen miracles, trust for more. If you've seen healings, trust for more. If you've seen prophecy, trust for more. If you've seen people raised from the dead, trust for more. The God we serve is a limitless God. And part of the framework of His church is meant to be His power displayed so that people go, what is happening? They ask the question and it gives us, as it gave Peter the floor to say, let me tell you what's taking place. They're not drunk, as you assume. It is the power of God, as was foretold. We see grace and mercy were poured out by God. Number, uh, sorry, number four in this, people had hope for salvations. Remember that thing that, that Joel said in there? He said that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. With their expectation of the power being displayed was also the expectation that salvation would come through the Messiah. We have to be a people who are constantly believing for salvations. 
not just in Sunday meetings, but every single day in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, expecting people to come to salvation, expecting the work and the, of the power of God that, again, raised Jesus from the dead, that displays signs and wonders, that gives us prophecies, can also save souls in the masses. There are millions of people in every nation across the globe that are right now desperate, hopeless. And friends, we have been given the hope of all mankind. We need to be a people. The church, part of our framework has to be a constant expectation for opportunities to share the gospel and to see people come to salvation. Number five, grace and mercy were poured out by God as part of the framework of his church. He sent Jesus. It was part of his plan. Jesus died and took upon himself the sin of all mankind, part of God's plan. And God was not about to let Jesus rot in the grave. He brought him and rose him up from the grave. Because again, the grace and mercy of God is what's been poured out. Not our mercy, not our ability to save because we don't have one. But we need to understand and we need to preach and we need to put into the underpinnings of the life of the church the grace and the mercy of God. It is not our works. It is not our religion. It is not how much of this we do or how little of that we do that saves us. And I know I'm preaching to the converted. But I want to encourage us to make sure that in everything we do, we do not put upon our people or the people that God gives us or that God brings us to. We don't put chains upon them. We don't put expectations upon them. If they do these things, they'll be saved. No. This tells us, this reminds us that part of the framework was the grace and the mercy of God. Jesus came and saved us by His grace. Jesus came and took our sin upon Himself instead of upon us by His mercy. That has to be part of the gospel that we preach. Not a gospel of doing, but a gospel of receiving. And then a gospel of walking that out by His grace and by His mercy. Number six, we see in this scripture, Jesus' rightful place was recognized and declared. It says in there, Peter preaches in there that Jesus was put at the right hand of God, the highest place of honor. And part of the framework that should never be changed, the very foundation upon which the framework can be built is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the head of his church. Jesus is the very essence of who we are and who we're to aspire to be, who we're to point people to. But if we are not honoring him first above all else, those other things will begin to fall to the wayside. They'll begin to take a higher place than him. And what we see in Peter's sermon, what we see in the beginnings of the church was Jesus was always given his rightful place as king, as God, as creator, as savior, as Messiah, as Lord. So we need to make sure that in everything we do, our preaching, our meetings, our songs, everything that we do, every person we disciple, every ministry that we birth, it has to be built around glorifying and honoring Jesus, keeping him in his rightful place. And again, I don't want to leave this point too quickly because we can move on and say, yes, yes, Jesus. But again, part of our a creed, I guess it has become, is to know Jesus and to make him known. But the Jesus we know must be Jesus, the creator, God himself, the Messiah, the, the one standing at the right hand of God, the mighty powerful one we see in the book of Revelation, the victorious one, the one risen from the dead. And, and as we look upon him, he has to always carry and walk in that rightful place. Number seven, we see that Peter in Peter's preaching, Sin was confronted. He didn't hold back. He didn't hold back from telling them what they had done. This Jesus that you crucified, 
And then they ask, what will we do? They, they're cut to the heart. They, they pierce their heart. And you see them turn around and say, what do we do? What, what do we do with what you've just said? Because the preaching was straightforward. It was honest. And we have to trust that the word of God is enough. We have to trust that the power of God pierces through hearts. Not water it down. Not avoid any of it. But preach the truth in love. I don't see Peter being angry here. I see Peter being stirred with faith and joy and excitement about what Jesus had done, filling him with his spirit and the opportunity to bring that gospel to all of the people who were there who were hungry. But friends, we have to make sure that our preaching is honest, straightforward, bringing the word of God that can set people free. We preach the gospel not to prove that we're right and they're wrong, not to turn bad people into good people, but to see the dead raised to see people transformed by the power of what Jesus has done. Preach the word of God, pure and true. Open it up, spend time, and don't don't regret spending time reading and just opening and simply reading through the word and unfolding it for the people. Don't feel like you have to have points and books and all of this. Open up the word of God, the book, and just let it pour out. Let the word do what only it can. Number eight out of these framework pieces. Again, the gospel was preached unedited and unashamedly. We have to not only trust in this gospel, but be so excited about it. Again, as I said a few times, the gospel sets people free. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to save men's souls. Preach with joy. Preach with excitement. And let me encourage you. I remember when I was coming through being trained to preach, I remember sitting in a class and I preached something and I preached with passion. And the guy said to me, he said, you act like... This one sermon is going to change everybody. You can't think that way. And I thought, that's, that's crazy. This is the gospel. And I remember it was Keir Taylor who said to me, Chris, throw that aside. Every time you preach, you need to believe and trust that this gospel, this gospel that Jesus came and died for, this gospel that saves men's souls will do the work it's meant to do. So every time you preach, preach with faith, preach with enthusiasm, and preach expecting people's lives to be forever changed. So I want to encourage you as you preach, whether it's on a street corner, at a home group, on a, on a platform, uh, on a Sunday morning, preach the gospel with faith, with excitement. It shouldn't be like, oh, the gospel. No, it's the gospel. And come with the expectation that people, even if they're saved, are going to be changed by the power of what Jesus has done. And the last of these, and again, this is not a, a complete list. These are just the things I feel God wants to show us. In, in number nine in this part of the framework is people were saved, truly saved. You see in there, uh, Peter talks about Jesus as both Lord and Messiah. Too often we have this coming to Jesus moment that is coming to church or, or changing your behavior or forgive me of my sin so my guilt's gone. And we all know this, but again, we must constantly be reminded Jesus is meant to be Savior, yes, Messiah the one who took away the sin of all mankind. We are set free. We are saved by him, washed by his blood. He took our sin that we deserve to pay the price for. All of those things remain true. But he's not just Messiah, not just Savior. He is also meant to be Lord. True salvation comes through forgiveness in Christ and surrender to his Lordship. Make sure that we are teaching, preaching, and helping people to learn to walk in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He will never lead us wrong. And again, any of you who are leading churches, certainly through these times, His Lordship has been everything. He is the lifeline, the anchor. So make sure that we help people to to build their house upon the rock that is Jesus Christ, Lord and Messiah. Part of the framework must be that we see people saved, but let them truly be saved under Jesus Christ 
Savior and Lord. And friends, again, as I said, that to me was the framework that stood out. I felt like God wanted to remind us of those things. And that this is a time to be excited about the church. And I know some are in disarray. I know some have lost buildings and all those things. But the church that Jesus is coming back for is in a place right now where we can be stronger and more effective than ever. And so I just feel like we're going to read back, jump back into Acts 2 and finish that chapter. And in there are so many things that God wants us to just begin to allow to permeate who we are, things to expect, things to walk in. As we have the framework, things that will begin to build the house that God is building. So let's turn back to Acts 2 and we'll pick up in verse 42. All the believers, all the believers. And again, notice the, the, the everyone part of this. It is not for the elite few. It is not for the many of you who said, hey, I'm a leader, I'm in. It's for those who aren't there today, wherever you're meeting. It's for those who come and go when they feel like it. It's for those who haven't yet understood that lordship and call of God upon their lives. So as we, as we build, as we walk in these things, continue to have that all, everyone mindset. Bring people in. And this is not just for the elders of the church. This is for all of us and far more effective as the whole church reaches out to those who are on the fringes and brings them in to the all factor of God. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper. Make note of that. We'll come back to it in a minute. And to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers, there's that all again, all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, each day, each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Just love that phrase because it breaks us out of this traditional church mindset. Each day people were saved. So here they are. We're just going to run through them. Again, I trust you'll get into this. And again, maybe for many of you, this is just refreshing and reminding. For some, maybe it's unfolding new things. But let's just take these points and let God really begin to shape His church His way. Number one, the church is meant to be a church of power. And we see that throughout the book of Acts, throughout the scriptures. And I said it before, we are not meant to be a natural people. Natural and Christianity, ordinary and Christianity do not belong together. It must be supernatural, outside of the natural realm in order for it to be God. So let our minds just be set on that. As we meet on Sundays, as we gather, as we have connect groups, and as we simply walk through life, you are filled with the supernatural power of the Creator of all things. When we gather on a Sunday, whether it's 10 or hundreds of us coming together, all filled with the supernatural power of the supernatural God, our expectation should be disappointment if we don't see something out of the ordinary take place. We must build and believe as a church of power. Number two, a church, again, of honest and straightforward preaching. And I've addressed that. Make sure we are preaching the Word of God without holding it back, without watering it down, without being ashamed of an ounce of it. It changes lives. Number three, we must preach a message that offends the flesh, pierces hearts, and transforms lives. Again, each of those work together. And it's not that we go in and we find the hardest Scripture to digest. We can. It's just that we understand people will be offended. But what's being offended if we're preaching the Word of God in love is the flesh. 
And the flesh has to be offended for people to come to a place where the heart is pierced and they say, what must I do to be saved? Be emboldened, be encouraged, preach the word of God, true, passionate, excited, in love, and let it do its work. Number four, we need to build, again, be a church that, that again, preaches a salvation that requires both lordship and messiahship. Let it be both. Help people understand, yes, he's forgiving your sins, but let him also lead your life. Surrender and forgiveness, walking hand in hand. And make sure we equip everybody in the life of the church to understand that is the fullness of the gospel so they can lead people to Christ as well, but not just Savior, Lordship, so God can really begin to do work through all of us. Number six, or sorry, number five, a church that expects the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I know we addressed power earlier, but sometimes we, we delay the things of the Holy Spirit. But what we see in the scriptures, people were, they were forgiven, they were saved, and they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's an expectation that every believer will be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit when they come to salvation. And I know scripturally there were guys who, who understood Jesus but had not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But what we see in this, this beginning of the church is we see the two together. We see the power of the Holy Spirit working right away through the people. And so we need to, to build, we need to pour into people, we need to be equipped, we need to walk in the faith and the understanding that as people are saved, they will also be filled with the Holy Spirit and this power released in them, baptized fully. So when they leave, wherever it is we're meeting them and they're getting saved, they're going baptized, filled, operating in the gifts because then the Holy Spirit can give them everything they need to go and be evangelists and to go and make disciples, which is our great call. Number six, and this will pick up on a couple points. We are called to be a devoted people. Now again, devotion is not a casual mindset. Devotion is not a now and then. Devotion is all in. And we use that phrase often, but all in means all in, everything. And I just want to encourage you, don't be afraid to preach an all-in gospel. Don't be afraid to preach an all-in following of Jesus Christ. Jesus over and over again talks about those who look back, those who go back are not worthy to follow me. Friends, it's, this is an everything. All cards are on the table. We are no longer ourselves. We are bought at a price. And again, I know I'm preaching to people who know these things, but I just want to fill you with faith and courage to continue to preach those things. And if you've backed off of them, I want to encourage you, speak them. They are life. They are passion. They make life worth living when we're living for Him all in. Part of this thing of devoted is, again, each priest equipped. We have to carry on with the priesthood of all believers mindset. Please don't get fooled into, well, the, the few of us are the only ones here. Keep pouring, keep believing, keep reaching, keep equipping, keep pouring out things that equip, even those that look at you on a Sunday with their arms folded, look like they're completely disinterested. Keep believing for them to catch this and to become <clears throat> the priests that they're called to be. Devote the people to the scriptures. Again, not just on a Sunday, but encourage the people. <clears throat> Put in programs that will help people to be able to, to open up the Word of God and understand it. To do genuine fellowship. Again, not just Sunday. Sunday mornings is not really fellowship. I mean, we can have coffees and biltong, and you guys do that better than anybody else in the world. But true fellowship takes place throughout the week in homes, at workplaces, in those gatherings. Encourage and try and make room for genuine fellowship. It's where we connect. It's where we unload and offload and sharpen. It's where we become family. And it's where people don't get lost in the busyness of life. And also the devoted people to prayer. 
Again, I love the way prayers come roaring back as we've faced all that we've faced. But to me, I look at Hebrews 10 where it says that we have this, this great priest, this high priest who's the, the veil's removed. We can come right into the presence of God with confidence. And yet many churches don't even pray. Many people don't pray. Please, if your church is not consistently praying, that is the most important thing I believe a church leadership can do. On their own, yes, but with the people. Lead people into His presence. Teach the people to pray. Teach the people to minister. Teach the people to hear God and to speak to God. We have to equip every single person in the church as if another lockdown's coming that'll never go away so that we know that every neighborhood that our church is in is being touched by the gospel because we've equipped them in the scriptures. We've equipped them with genuine fellowship. We've equipped them with how to pray because we've helped them become devoted to the things that God has called us to. Number seven, we see in there it says that the church, everyone was in awe. Well, they weren't in awe of the apostles. They weren't in awe of the things that were happening. They were in awe of God. And again, you can't stir up that sort of thing. But we as leaders have to help people keep their eyes on Him. Again, the songs we choose, the things we preach, the direction we give, all of that has to constantly help people just put their awe on Him. The awesomeness of God, enamored by God. As soon as we are enamored by people or things or meetings or buildings or whatever else, we lose that which is the most important, our eyes upon God. Again, our eyes need to be fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. So we need to do everything we can to make sure that our people continue to just keep their heads up and their eyes on Him, especially in a time like this when there's so many distractions. Number eight, again, I think I've gone over this many, many times, but as we look through that, that last bit of Acts 2, we need to be a church that operates and expects, operates in and expects miracles all the time, every day everywhere we go, and impart that to the people. Number nine, a church that is committed to gathering. And again, we've had the privilege to actually have our gatherings put aside. And I know that's a weird thing to say, privilege, but it's helped us to focus on the rest and to strip away that which isn't important. But as we have the chance to come back together, friends, don't forsake gathering. Gathering is part of what we see scripturally. It's part of what the early church did is they got together both on a small scale and on a large scale to encourage, to sharpen, to be filled up with the things to be taught, to be equipped, and then to go from those places. So make sure that we are committed to coming together regularly. And I know the church doesn't have to have meetings every single day. That's not how they did it. They, were God, they got together all together and then they got together in homes. So even if you're not a home group leader, have people in your home. Gather people together. It's not a prescriptive thing of you have to have all these certificates to gather. They were committed to coming together. Commit to doing that. Commit to gathering with people maybe you don't know in the life of the church and help that to carry on throughout the life of the church. It'll only make the church stronger and more effective no matter what we face. Number 10, a generous people. And again, we see in there people sold the things they had to make sure that no one had lack. You know, we can go through tithes and offerings, all of those things, but the truth is, is we simply need to be people who open our hands. Say, Lord, everything I have is yours anyway. Yes, tithe. Yes, give offerings. Yes, make sure that the lights are paid for and all of those sorts of things. But look for opportunities to be generous, both giving into apostolic giving and trips that are happening, but also giving to your neighbors and giving to people around you. Look for opportunities to buy someone a meal or to buy someone a cup of coffee. Anything that just displays I trust God and I want to display His generosity. Why? Is it just for the sake of generosity? No, it builds up and displays the generosity of the God who gave everything. 
It can create a conversation, especially with unsafe people. And if you're going to be generous, be generous absolutely to those in the church. But be generous when you get a chance to the unsaved. Blow their minds by doing something that to them doesn't make any sense. It will create an opportunity for conversation, and the conversation will lead to this Jesus who saved your soul and given you everything you have. Let's be a generous people. Let's give everything we have so that every nation can be reached with the gospel. Number 11, a church again that meets in homes, outreach, discipleship. I believe that our home, our dining room table is one of the greatest tools we have to love on and to reach people. Friends, everyone in the life of every church should know that whether it's a single person, maybe they can't cook so they pick up takeaway. But Having people sitting at a table across from us gives an opportunity for people to let their guard down. I'm not saying we, we dupe people into sitting at our table, but have people in because you want to meet them. You want to hear their story. Give them a chance to just pour out their heart and listen and let God speak to you on their behalf. And when they've shared their story, tell them what Jesus has done in your life. Tell them the, the ways that he's transformed, the things that he's broken in upon. And then let the Spirit of God bring prophecy, words of knowledge, life. Let salvations take place over our dining room tables. Open up our homes. Look for those opportunities. And take those as well to disciple people, to encourage people. Take those young and old guys, but young in the faith, who just don't know how to walk it out and disciple them in our homes. Take that time that can't happen on a large scale on a Sunday morning. Don't wait for church leadership meetings to come together only. Those can only help. But each of us are called to make disciples. And let me encourage you, our home is one of the best places to do it. Number 12, a church that remembers what Jesus has done for them. And we see they were devoted to the Lord's Supper. Every day we have to be reminded of the salvation we've been given. Because as we remember what He's done, it stirs each of us to share that with people around us. Too often we forget where we came from, we forget what He's done. And it's not that we live in the past or we tell our people to live in the past. But again, renew that salvation daily with fear and trembling, with joy and celebration. Remember what He's done. And as church leaders, as we see in the Scriptures, every time they came together, it was to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We can do more of that, not as a traditional religious thing, but an opportunity to truly reflect what Jesus has done in me and for me to share with others around us. Number 13, almost there. A church that impacts the community. Remember it says in there that they had the goodwill of all the people. They weren't just talking about those who were Christians and in the church. They were talking about the goodwill of the community. Friends, the church needs to operate outside of its walls. We can have as many meetings as we want and bring as many people in as we can. That's great. That's part of the call, equipping the saints. But we, as we are equipped, are meant to do something with that. And it is to go to the nations, but it's also to go to our neighborhoods, our neighbors, our co-workers, people in school. Make sure that what we're believing for and trusting for is to get outside of our walls, to clothe and to feed and to minister and to encourage. And don't just start up ministries for the sake of ministry. Find that which is birthed in the people that God has given you. See what makes them tick and come around them and encourage them. Fan those flames. And what will happen is you'll begin to have, if you've got 100 people, you'll begin to have 80 or 90 ministries that aren't these massive things you've got to keep going or plates you have to keep spinning. They will be the very passion of your people. And they simply need you to be praying for them and encouraging them, spurring them on. And then we see ministry taking place all the time outside of the walls of our planned meetings. Number 14, daily salvations, not just Sundays. Believe for it, trust for it, encourage your people in it. So meetings on Sundays are great and people can get saved there. But how about every single day people get saved? And then Sunday, you as the leaders get to meet all the people that have just met Jesus. 
What a glorious, glorious meeting that will be. I'm telling you, your worship will be beyond anything you've ever imagined as you'll be so over, overjoyed. Number 15, a church that God can entrust with more. At the end of this, says people were saved every day. That means God trusted his church and he entrusted his church with soul upon soul upon soul. Let's build upon the framework that is Jesus Christ and his way. Let us develop and shape this church, not in the way that we like, not in our image, not in the image of another church, but in the way he's called us to, because in that place, he can trust us with so much more. And number 16, last one, let us be a church that is dispersed for mission. And again, it's not in Acts 2 yet, but as we see later, Stephen is martyred in the church because they were enjoying it so much, didn't go. They were scattered. And a church that is sent around the ends of the earth. I mean, we have the gospel today because of that original just going. Jesus told them to go and they weren't. So something else had to happen. But friends, let us be churches that send. Let us be churches that go. Let us take this gospel to the ends of the earth. That's the church we're called to be so that Jesus can come back and take his bride home. Again, I'll just read this at the end. Again, we're not looking back to become what was, but to remember what he is building and to restore the proper framework. So his church will be all that we're called to be and that the lost souls of the nations will have the privilege to hear of the hope we have been entrusted to share.